You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. You might remember uh, a couple of months ago, we, we had a great chat with Pastor Keith Haney, author of One Nation Under God, Healing the Racial Divides in America. It was a really helpful and insightful chat, and he has graciously uh, agreed to come back and do a whole series with us, um, uh, sharing some of the thoughts that uh, he and the insights that he shared in that Bible study. Uh, not the whole thing, because uh, you really got to dig into the whole Bible study. We're not doing the whole thing here, but so, just some insights um, to give you an idea of what you could learn if you uh, were to participate in that Bible study. So we're going to have Pastor Haney on here in just a little bit to share that with you. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting the Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. Joining us today, the Reverend Keith Haney. He's author of One Nation Under God, Healing the Racial Divides in America, a Bible study from Concordia Publishing House. He's also assistant to the president for missions, human care, and stewardship for LCMS Iowa District West. Pastor Haney, thanks for being our guest on the Coffee Hour. Oh, it's my pleasure. Looking forward to it. So you have prepared this six-session Bible study that walks us through uh, the uh, a number of things uh, addressing the racial divides in America, and particularly what God's Word has to say about how we love our neighbor uh, and, and, and what that means for us in, uh, in this particular context. And it's been very insightful for me having the opportunity to walk through this personally. Um, it, it's been very insightful for me, and I know many others who have uh, worked through this Bible study. Uh, tell us a little bit about about your background before we dig into the Bible study. Help our our listeners uh, understand who you are and where you've come from. So I grew up in Louisiana during born in the mid '60s. So I was born two years after Dr. King was shot. I remember my mom actually two years after after um, JFK was shot, um, three years before Dr. King was shot. But I remember. That day, even at three, the impact that that had on my family, because there was this sense of, wow, the, the one messenger of hope that we had was now assassinated in 68. And so it was it was really traumatic for my community. But it was interesting because I ended up going at a young age to a Lutheran uh, elementary school and also, also Lutheran preschool. But my elementary school was mostly white. And I didn't realize at the time how formative it was to be in a Lutheran elementary school in the 70s in Louisiana in the midst of all the civil unrest. And I look back going, why was I received so well and welcomed so openly? And no one mentioned that I was Black and it wasn't an issue in my day-to-day life. So I got a chance to learn how to interact in that culture. And they didn't let us speak, you know, Southernese. So we had to learn how to speak English <laughs> from a Midwest perspective. So I couldn't say flow and dough, which was kind of how we always said things down south. Uh, <laughs> but I also learned a lot about friendship and acceptance and unconditional love. And it was like, wow, this is this is great. And I didn't realize that there was a difference until I tried to date one of the girls in the school. And that kind of caused a little stir. Uh, <laughs> so that's kind of how I got started with this idea of, I don't think what I see in the world right now, there's no one communicating and translating what each side is saying. So I wrote the Bible study with the idea and intent of no one's acting as a cultural translator. So when white people say something and they mean something else, typically, 
black people don't understand why they made that statement. And the same thing is with black Americans when white people say something. And so I get to go in and kind of go, that's not what she meant. <laughs> I think she actually meant this. And people go, oh, okay, well, then I take that, I take that, take back what I just said then. Mm -hmm. There's so much that happens when we, when we talk past each other or think that we're saying things that we're not actually saying because we have different understandings or, or contexts for different words or phrases or, or all of this. And it, it just, it gets to be one, one big mess a lot of the times. How, how would you define the, that racial divide that we have in America? I think the divide to me is more along, more on economic lines than it is on racial lines. The frustration that I see in the streets and with the protesters is about the idea that somehow the American dream has not been realized for African-Americans who are in poor neighborhoods. And even those who have achieved, there's still that sense that we can't get as far as our white counterparts. And that's always underlying this issue. But there are other things that have been flashpoints that have made that issue more obvious to people. So with the death of George Floyd, I think, what, what happened was people go, I've never run across a police incident like that in my life. No one's ever pulled me out of a car and and beat me or treated me badly. So when we see those things on television, we go, well, I'm, I have no fear of the police because, you know, I can usually have a conversation with them. But for some black people who live in, in a situation where you don't know when the police stops, what's going to happen, uh, that's a new reality. And so we have this underlining issue that if I see a black person driving a Mercedes in a, in a really white neighborhood, you don't, you get stopped maybe because what are you doing in the neighborhood with this car? Is this car stolen? It doesn't matter if you work it on Wall Street or in the university. The thought is you shouldn't have this car in this neighborhood. And so that initially sometimes sparks the, the reason you're being stopped. And you're wondering if I'm a white guy with the same car, no one ever stops me and go, why are you driving this car? So how complex is this issue, um, not just from one side of the view? You, you've had the opportunity to, to look at this from multiple perspectives. How complex is this issue? It's complex because I think we, we still don't understand what's at the heart of it. Why is that the understanding that some people have not achieved or could not achieve or maybe even won't achieve? And how do we fix it? And so what we've tried to do is, and I, I was talking to someone, a friend of mine about this, is like, the government does a really bad job of universal grace. Because <laughs> what the government does with universal grace and mercy is, well, here's an example. So we know the justice system is somehow messed up. So the best way to equalize that is to let all the prisoners out of prison. And if you're, you're, and if you're in the community, you're going, no, that's a horrible idea. Because there are people in prison because it's safer for us that they are in prison. And so letting everybody out and going, well, they were unfairly prosecuted or unfairly in prison. Everybody was. You then create a system where now you have injustice and now you have to crack down harder on justice to compensate for your idea of mercy. And so the problem is we need to individually look at what are the situations and the circumstances 
that are creating inequality in our country. And it has to do with their systems that are broken or systems that are unfair. And how do we fix those systems? And so sometimes we think it's just a something simple, just, just one simple thing, and that's going to fix everything. But is it really just one simple thing that we do that's going to fix everything? There are, there, are, there are three complex systems that need to be addressed. I would say one of the systems that's out of, out of whack and unfair is education. I served in Milwaukee, in Detroit, in St. Louis, in the Chicago area. And I can tell you that in poor neighborhoods, the education system is far inferior to the suburbs. So what you have is you have kids that are trapped in, in failing school systems. And the worst thing that happens for those kids is they lose hope for a future. I remember asking one of my kids one day, so what do you want to be when you grow up? And the one gal said, I want to be a video dancer. And I'm like, a video dancer? You mean those girls who dance on the rap videos? Like, yeah. I'm like, well, that's not really a good career move for you. <laughs> and, and another young man said to me, it doesn't matter what I want to be. I want to live past 25. Wow. And, and there, it, was that, it was that hopelessness of what happens if you really believe that you won't live past 25. You live your life very differently. You don't care about anybody else. You don't care about yourself. You're living life with this hard and fast, reckless abandonment because it's like, it doesn't matter anyway. If I'm not going to see 50, if I'm not going to retire doing something, then it doesn't matter how I live my life. It doesn't matter what choices I make. And so if you take away kids' hope and you take away people's hope, and that's what's happening in the urban areas, they've lost hope, then you you create the, the flashpoints of any time there's an opportunity to remind people that the system is unfair or their structures are unfair. They will act out to point people to the fact that something in our system is broken. You mentioned education is one of those systems. What are, what are the other two? The other two is economics. What I discovered when I worked with people in the city was the urban areas, they don't pass down generational wealth to their kids. So most people I talk to in, you know, in, work, in working with in more white kind of people, they have wills, they have estates, and those estates, that land, that farm, whatever they are passing down, will give their kids and their grandkids a step up in education, in economics, and buying their first house. What I ran across in the inner city was people had no wills, they had no uh, death insurance or life insurance. So when they died, they didn't pass down wealth to their families. They passed down debt to their families. So you had to have a $30,000 funeral that you couldn't pay for when you were alive and your kids can't pay for in your death. And so you, now you put them in a hole because there's no home. There's not very much home ownership in areas where I grew up. So where I, where I was living with my the people there. And so that system creates this, in, this imbalance that the opportunities aren't there for the next generation. It's not a legacy. You leave it for the next generation. So education, economic systems, what, and what's the third system? The third system is probably justice. And, and that happened a lot when you talked about the war on drugs. The war on drugs really tend to target marijuana and crack cocaine, which are two drugs that are really prominent in the African-American community. So 
those were the things that people were arrested for and spent time in prison for. So it, it really is a complex issue, not just one simple thing. One, one simple thing isn't going to fix it all, but something that takes some time. And we'll, we'll dig into uh, how do we respond to that in more in uh, the coming, well, in the next segment and in the coming episodes as well. So this is part of a series that we're talking with Pastor Keith Haney, author of One Nation Under God, Healing the Racial Divides in America, Bible study from Concordia Publishing House, cph.org. We have more to talk about with Pastor Haney. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golsack. You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. And at Concordia University, it's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We're in the first of uh, first episode of a series with Pastor Keith Haney, author of One Nation Under God: Healing the Racial Divides in America. He's also assistant to the President for Missions, Human Care, and Stewardship for the LCMS Iowa District West. Uh, we are talking about uh, just really beginning uh, in this series on healing racial divides in America. Uh, Pastor, we, we talked about the how complex the issue is, the systems that um, th- that have been impacted that 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 impact these racial divides in America. How complex this is. What role do emotions play in this division? Emotions right now have taken over this this discussion. And so you have people who are frustrated, angry about what they've seen with the George Floyd thing. And I and I think the problem with just pure emotion is where do you how do you channel that emotion? Do you channel that emotion to find ways to move the discussion forward? Or you do do you channel those emotions just to vent your anger and frustration at the system? What I see more of is people angry and they're burning down stores, they're looting, they're attacking people on the streets. And those emotions are trying to use that that anger, that resentment, that frustration to move the needle forward in social justice. The problem is people now see that anger and that frustration and the, the effects of that, and they're turned off by the discussion. So people now aren't looking for solutions. They're just looking to stop the anger and the violence and the emotions. Because I'm married, and I know that if I dis- discuss with my wife a very passionate topic of mine, and I come at her with the emotions of that, and I'm angry and I'm frustrated, we're not going to get too far in our conversation. And that's the same thing I see right now. We're not going to sit down and be able to solve anything when people are just angry and mad at each other. We have to step back. We have to take a pause. We have to breathe. And we have to sit down at a table 
and negotiate and begin to discuss how do we address the complex problems of our society. Mm-hmm. You've talked about it a little bit, but how would you describe the experience of most Black Americans? I think you have a divide. I think you have some younger people who are very frustrated. Um, And so they are joining forces with younger people, especially college-age kids, who are also frustrated. It was interesting. I just had a talk with someone recently who said to me, why are Black people burning down our cities? (laughs) And I said, I'm not sure what news media you're watching, but most of the protesters I see aren't Black. They're, they are young, white, educated people who are taking up the cause of Black Lives Matter or the movement, and they are reacting with the anger. And Black people are kind of on the sidelines going, this isn't really helping because <laughs> no one, no one's listening to what the issues are. All they see are angry people burning down buildings, and they don't see anyone really willing to talk about, well, what do I do? What can I, how can I help? If you don't give people a, how can I help part of this discussion, they will tune you out because white people will feel this is hopeless. We're never going to solve it. It's too big. Why am I going to waste my time even trying to? So how have these experiences impacted the relationship between black Americans and white Americans, the, both the, 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 the common experience that that you mentioned earlier, and then also today, the 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 rioting, the looting, the the destruction that's happening as well. How have these experiences impacted the relationship between Black Americans and White Americans? One thing that came out of this, I think, that's really that's interesting to me is we have seen people use the the emotions as a way to guilt people into change, and you can't guilt people into change. And so what's happened is. The, the movement itself has started to become negative in the minds of people. And so now they just dismiss the movement. They dismiss the issues and they're going, none of these issues are real. And you add to that tension a political season. And now people are going, well, how much of this is real? How much is this politics? And so you, you really have people going to their corners now and they're not going to discuss it. They're going to stay in their corners until the election's over. And I don't think anything's going to move the needle until the election's over, which is sad because there are still people who are still hurting in poor neighborhoods, dealing with poor education. And you add to all of this the COVID-19 issues. And for those kids who are already in failing school systems, you add to their to their frustration and the parents' frustration. Now e-learning which most communities don't have good Wi-Fi in those, in those homes. So now you've made the learning take another step back for kids. So you've now exacerbated the situation to where they may lose three to four years of learning in a very critical time in their life. So we really compounded the racial issue with the COVID-19 issue. And so it's just going to be even more of a pill to overcome for most people. How have... Uh, those those political ideologies, uh, agendas of, of certain groups, how have those things hijacked our ability to come together and and heal and talk about these issues the way that we need to be talking about them? Well, if you remember when the George Floyd incident happened, what I heard from both sides of the aisle was there was a need for police reform. 
And we're all going, yeah, that's a great thing to do. And that lasted for about two weeks. And all of a sudden now, <laughs> neither side in Congress or anywhere else are talking about genuine police reform, which is not that all cops are bad, because that's just not true either. But is there a need to do some reform in police systems, maybe better training, uh, better equipment, whatever that may be? How do we improve our police forces? But that got hijacked by, you talk about emotions earlier, to not reform, but eliminate. So now the discussion is, let's eliminate all police. We've seen recently, I think it was last count, seven police chiefs who have been forced out of their jobs. And what's ironic to me about it is the majority of those police chiefs who've lost their jobs are African-American. I'm like, if anyone's going to be on the front end of reform, it's going to be an African-American policeman who serves African-American communities. Now you've run them out of their jobs and there's no one to have a discussion about what are realistic reforms that need to happen in my community of people who look like me. So we've done a disservice to the movement of how do we actually have honest police reform when the very people who could lead that reform have now been forced out of their jobs because of emotion. So it's a complex issue, many systems messed up, and we've, we, we've even made it more complex uh, by not listening to one another and, and not working together. We've, it just seems, in some sense, seems hopeless. Where do you want to take us in this series, Pastor Haney? I want to take us to the place where it has to begin, and that was with conversation. We need to listen to people who are in those difficult systems and really ask them, what do you need? We never really ask the people what you need. What we tend to do is we come in with our great ideas and we impose our ideas on people. And without ever seeking what you really need and asking the question, how can we best assist you? And so we, we pass laws, we pass policies that end up doing way more harm than they do good for the system. And so we have to kind of listen to, like in education, what would be the most helpful thing for inner city kids in education? That might be school choice, where pe parents can go and pick the schools their kids go to. It might be a, a different system, less smaller classroom sizes. But, but the question is, what do the parents and what do the students need to better achieve? How do we give them the American dream in education? How do we improve our test scores? How do we improve their ability to go to college? That's what they want to do. How do we make sure they're equipped to make a living? Because that's really the goal of education, that they can make a living, a living wage for their families. How do we equip them to do that? And we're not really asking those questions. Hmm. So, so listening and listening intently, listening uh, for the sake of actually hearing what the other person is saying. Uh, and, and I would say that even to the listener of this series, don't hear just one little thing we say and take it and run with it, but listen to the whole conversation. I think it's going to be much more valuable that way. Because uh, if you take just one little thing a person says and then take it out of context, uh, wow, it can become so unproductive. Uh, where do you want to take us in the word of God in this series as well? Uh, as we, we, you've written a Bible study, One Nation Under God. 
uh, to help us with this topic as well. Where do you want to take us in the Word of God? Well, there are a couple of things. I, in the first session, I want people to understand that we are dealing with complex racial division in our country among black and white. And not just black and white, but black and white is still focused because of what's happening right now. But I want to give people the opportunity to give insights into what the black American experience is. You can't really help to, to have empathy for if you don't truly understand what the experience is. I want to help them really discuss, you know, how some of what's happened has been built on um, the pain of the past. I know we don't like talking about the slavery issue in our country, but some of the effects of that are still in place in our systems today. And so we have to figure out what are those things are still left over from that that horrible sin of slavery that happened over 200 years ago. So part of it is listening to what have we done and what haven't we done and what should we still do to really overcome that, that sin of the past. So in the weeks ahead, we'll, we'll continue the conversation and uh, about this issue and look at the Word of God uh, regarding the, this issue of racial division in America. Pastor Haney, thank you so much for being our guest on the Coffee Hour. Looking forward to more conversations with you uh, to help us understand this and particularly to look at God's Word on this issue as well. Thanks for being our guest on the Coffee Hour. My pleasure. You're listening to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Anywhere.